0: Well, I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 13. It's a short psalm, but as always, here we find yet another psalm that packs a punch and speaks uh, to our particular situations. You know, I remember a friend of mine in, uh, in high school just loved Shakespeare, and I think rightly so, and said, there's not an emotion that you can't find uh, written in Shakespeare's plays. Um, well, if that's true for Shakespeare, how much more for the psalms? Here in the Psalter, we find the whole host of human experience spelled out in the pages of Scripture in the form of prayer. Uh, For those who are joyous, there are psalms of joy, but for those who struggle with deep pain, we find those psalms as well. And this is a particular psalm that we find this evening, evening one of lament, one penned by David himself. Psalm chapter 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? How long will You hide Your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because He has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's Word. Let us pray and ask that the Lord would illuminate our eyes and hearts to understand. Uh, this prayer of David. Our gracious God and Father, we do pray that as we give attention uh, this evening to Your Word, that You would give us uh, an alertness and a holy diligence to pursue uh, Your Word and the things of God that we might know uh, how to respond in the midst of trial and difficulty. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. When your soul's in despair, what do you do? Perhaps one of the most practical questions we can ask in this day and age, where is it that you turn? I think we know, uh, all of us here in church know the right answer. Right? What do you do? Well, you pray. But I think there are those times in the midst of prolonged affliction that you feel paralyzed. Uh, to pray seems like the greatest obstacle, the hardest thing there is to do on the face of the earth. You feel as if you're unable to lift a finger and prayer you know that very thing that calvin calls the chief exercise of our faith prayer seems so impossible to do well psalm 13 directs our path in this matter and it seeks to pull us out of the weeds you know, I, uh, I don't know about you i've been through those times where you're, you're so discouraged you might have your bible open and you, you just don't even you don't even want to read Don't even want to pray. You don't know what to do. You don't want to eat. You can't sleep. What do you do? How do you get out of such despair? Here we find a short prayer. It's a prayer you find that's very clearly mixed with sorrow and joy at the same time. And I think it's a realistic prayer that aids us in the walk of faith even in the times of chronic spiritual fatigue and chronic spiritual depression. I'd like us to examine this psalm in two parts. The first we might simply title How long? You see here in verses one to four. And secondly, as we look at verses five to six, we can title it What love? How long? question mark. What love? Exclamation mark. After we examine that, I'd like us to meditate on Christ as the great psalm singer, as He leads the church in the prayer of faith in desperate times. Well, the psalmist begins by asking a question—a very uh, oft asked question that you see replete throughout the Bible. This is not the only place, but here, I think it's the uh, the same questions that's asked in in uh, over and over again in more place than any. Other portion of Scripture. How long, O Lord? Quite literally, until when? When will the pain stop? Four times he asks this question here How much longer, O Lord, when this feeling of abandonment by God will dissipate? Will you forget me forever? That sense of estrangement from God. How long will you hide your face from me? The sense of loneliness. As the psalmist asks, how long must I take counsel in my own soul? The relentless suffering. How long will I have sorrow in my heart all the day? The humiliation. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Right, how painful is it to trust the Lord when all appearances seem to shout that God has forgotten us? It seems to be a, 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 the, the totally opposite of what we hear every Sunday when we hear the ironic blessing pronounced every Sunday morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine on you. Here, David is in effect saying, I don't, I don't see the face of God. Why is God's face hidden? Why is His countenance so far away? Why is it darkened. Why am I left to my own counsel, my own uh, lingering thoughts in the middle of the night? David here does not feel blessed. David does not feel guarded or kept. Rather than the light of God's countenance shining upon him, the Lord's face seems hidden. What powerful imagery that we have here. It's, I think, worth slowing down to meditate. Uh, and he says, how long will you hide your face? What does it mean to hide one's face? If you've ever um, received a phone call from somebody you didn't want to talk to, so you don't answer, or you see them from across uh, the way in the grocery store, what do you do? You, you, you hurry down, you scurry down another aisle. You hide yourself from them for a particular reason? Well, we find this being a particular question uh, that is asked by so many saints in Scripture. Job asks the same question in the midst of his suffering. This is Job chapter 13. Why do you hide your face? And why do you consider me your enemy? Job sees these as two things that are operating in tandem. The Lord has hidden himself because he must be my adversary. It's the conclusion that Job make. Psalm 89 asks a similar question. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? If the Lord doesn't shine His face upon us, we are left with nothing uh, but being abandoned into an estate of sin and misery. For God to hide His face And Scripture implies that He has hidden it on account of one of several things, be it our own sin or what the psalmist seems to call some type of case of divine amnesia, if that even were possible. You read of Psalm 44, Why, O Lord, do You hide Your face and forget our affliction and oppression? Isn't that how we feel at times? Can you imagine what it would be like to be an Israelite living under bondage of slavery for 400 years? You're 200 years in. Your grandparents, your parents have been praying the same prayer for uh, day after day, night after night, week after week, month after month, decade after decade, now generation after generation crying out to the Lord and asking how much longer, O Lord my God, will you forget our oppression well, here David asks the same thing. Whatever his circumstance may have been, he feels alone due to his circumstances. He is left now to his own his own heart's relentless fears and doubts, with no apparent comfort, no counsel that comes from above. He doesn't even know which way to go, and the loneliness is suffocating. This is not a momentary hiccup in his life. This is not a random case of insomnia one night where he jots down six brief verses or his doubts and fears after eating too much pizza one night now get the best of him. You see here in verse 2, his sorrow extends even in broad daylight. Day by day, it pursues him. It is a sorrow that is relentless and all-consuming. It is a a chronic spiritual depression. You think of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on this particular matter. I think we all have been there to one degree or another. It is all-consuming. It is infinite, it seems at least, in its duration. It's not simply a matter of David getting lost in his own thoughts. There is a clear and present danger surrounding him. He is not simply being paranoid. There are people out to get him. The prospect that his enemy, in fact, might truly triumph over him. And David looks back on the promises of God. Remember, even as we heard this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord says, I will establish your line forever. And here's David on the run. Calvin, so many uh, early commentators think that this is David during his period of exile as he's on the run from Saul. It seems to fit. David saying, well, where, where have the promises of God been realized? The Lord has promised a kingdom and I am just a runt on the run. Constantly fleeing for my life and it looks like the enemy may in fact win. We consider our brothers and sisters in China. For nearly a century, the church has been hunted down and persecuted ruthlessly relentlessly. Not a simply isolated long night of the soul, but it has been an affair that has uh, transcended and spread across multiple generations. Christian experience for our own brothers and sisters living now And the pressure that mounts to forget God because the temptation comes that perhaps God may have forgotten you. Or so, the enemy wants you to think. So the Christian prays, how long, O Lord? Here in verse 3, David cries out to the Lord like like a man long ago shipwrecked on a desert island and now he sees a plane in the distance. He sends out his distress call. This is his SOS. Look, over here. Consider my plight. Answer me and save. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. What is it that David's asking for here? What is this connection between light and sleep? I remember uh, when I lived out in Chicagoland and uh, Craig Trox and I, we shared... Uh, our, our offices, our studies, uh, joined next to one another in the church. And we had a, a, a connecting door, and I remember one day, I say one day, this actually happened at, you know, several times a week, but I would open up the door, and I'd walk in, and I'd see Craig working dutifully on his sermon at his desk. And I'd say, Craig, it's 1230, you want to go to lunch? And Craig would swivel around in the chair, and his eyes would light up with this big expression of delight on his face, as if he was waiting for the moment for me to to draw him away, uh, that we might go get some Chick-fil-A. Especially when I said my treat. Uh, You see the expression on a child's face when you ask the kid, hey, you want to go to Disney World? Their eyes light up. It's like the light bulbs turn on. We find the same thing in Scripture. Remember Jonathan? First 1 Samuel 14, he and his armor bearer are on a recon mission. They haven't eaten all day. Jonathan comes across some honeycomb and he eats it. What does he say? He says, see now, my eyes have brightened because I've tasted a little of this honey. We all know what it's like to, uh, uh, to be hungry and dinner hasn't yet come. And as soon as the first morsel of food comes, It's like your whole world's turned upside down. You know what it's like to get hangry. In Ezra chapter 9, Ezra cries out to the Lord in repentance and prayer, and he says we are slaves in a foreign land, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God that He might brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery using the same language of David here. David, in other words, is crying out to the Lord for a measure of grace that He might make it one more day. He does not die in despair. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Quite literally in the Hebrew, lest I sleep the death. And it gives a more pointed punch there. The idea that sleep is associated with death. This is unless there is something that is given to Uh, To enliven me, I will die in despair. My triumph will stand over my corpse and gloat. Will the Lord allow David's enemy to triumph over him or all the promises of God for nothing? Of course, we know the answer. Surely not. For the Lord has promised to deliver His anointed one and to establish the seat of His throne forever. Nevertheless, at this particular junction, as the promises of God have not come to full fruition, the enemy has taken the high ground. And so everything looks bleak according to outward appearance. And the psalmist is left shaken and staggering. We are noting here at the end of verse 4, when David says that he is shaken, quite literally that word to be shaken in the Hebrew is simply the passive uh, form of the word to die what a strong image it is it's as if you know uh, you know he, he has gone to somebody's gone up you know toe to toe with with a vander holyfield or mike tyson and they've gotten the uppercut and they've been left so, staggering so bad that they're on the verge of death it's nearly put them out for the count david is left staggering in a stupor in a daze he's like a like a drunken sailor walking the city streets on a saturday night Will this spell the end of David's life? Where's the victory that has been promised to the Lord's anointed king that we read of in Psalm chapter 2? What of the righteous being established like like the redwood beside calm waters that we read of in Psalm chapter 1? What of uh, the ungodly being scattered like dust in the wind? This seems to run uh, the exact opposite of. Uh, The very things that David has spent his life singing about. and Here at the end of verse 4, we find that the wicked are rejoicing at David's impending doom. But now David rejoices as well at something more sure, more certain, though its arrival had not yet come. David rejoices in the salvation, the steadfast love, of the Lord. We see that here in verses 5 and 6. David begins, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David looks at his surrounding circumstances and despite all appearances to the contrary, he clings to the promises of God. And this right here is the very nature and definition of faith, isn't it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen, the author of Hebrews tells us. Faith lays hold of the very things that remain still far off in the distance. It clings to the promises of God in Christ, though it does not look like those promises will ever materialize. Then in the face of those earthly circumstances that scream that God's promises will never come to fruition, the believer says, well, I trust in God's Word more than I do. Earthly circumstances, because this is the same God who has called light from darkness. This is the same God who has created the world from nothing. So this is the same God who will deliver me, not even with a snap of the finger, but with the very utterance of His breath. We look back on the life of, of, of the church here even over the past year. Whoever dreamed that the Lord would sustain this church by supplying us with a $40,000 deficit at the last minute? Look at all the ways the Lord support, has, has cared for us in the midst of difficult times. Because He is the same God today as He was to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the God who does not change. What Israelite ever expected that for forty years his sandals would not wear out, nor his clothes tatter in the desert? What Israelite ever dreamed that every day he would receive manna from heaven as his daily bread and water that would gush from a rock? Don't know how many geologists we have in the room. That typically does not happen. Water gushing from a rock, but it does when the Lord's involved. The Lord sustains and the Lord delivers according to His wonderful might. Such is the Christian's pilgrimage in this life. As Paul writes, we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, we walk clinging to the promises of God. We do not walk according to outward appearances for David's particular situation, it seems as if God had abandoned him. It seems as if his enemy has trapped when the reality was the exact opposite. The Lord had not abandoned him. The Lord had not forgotten. The Lord cannot forget. And David's enemy will be scattered like dust in the wind. Isn't it so fascinating? We don't even know who David's enemy is because it doesn't matter. David's enemy is now long dead and in the grave and will face judgment for what he has done. But the word of the Lord stands forever. This is not some dew-eyed naivety. This is not blissful ignorance. This is not some happy, clappy variety that tries to pretend that troubles do not exist. How many of us have ever uh, been to a church or or had uh, uh, well-intending believers that basically wanted you uh, to pretend like troubles didn't exist at all? And it's not the nature of this psalm. Here's a psalm that looks at uh, the realities and the pains of this world square in the face and says, it hurts. But my God is greater. So I'm so glad we sung this, this evening, Be Still My Soul. And I think that really encapsulates what we see going on here. The Lord is on your side David knows the real dangers that he faces both from within and from without and yet despite these earthly sorrows he anticipates and clings to the promise of heavenly joy and salvation Others might trust in their own financial wealth and resources. Others might trust in military power and prestige. Some trust in their own ingenuity, in their own resilience, in their own competency. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so David here exhibits that trust in song. You see that here in verse Six. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Notice this. David has, David's salvation has not yet come, but David sings as though it has. The song is the expression of faith. Again, one of my favorite quotes from Calvin is that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. I think we could perhaps tweak that. That singing is also an expression of our faith. What are the songs we sing but prayers set to verse? Think of where we would be without music. What a difference a song can make in the midst of difficult times. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid sound aside his crown for my soul. These songs that give us joy in the night, that sustain us, that it's, it's like that morsel of bread to the man who is, who is, is hungry, it's something that enlightens his eyes, it gives him that little bit of grace needed to sustain him through his daily trials, day after day. After day after day. And so David here sings of the steadfast love of the Lord. His covenant faithfulness where the Lord's mercies are in fact new every morning. It's like manna from heaven. Day after day you think, well, will manna appear tomorrow? And sure enough, manna shows up right there on your doorstep. These mercies come to enlighten our eyes, to refresh the soul that has been wearied by the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Singing calms the soul's disquieted despair, and it redirects our gaze from the fleeting powers of this world. I repeat, the fleeting powers of this world. Remember how strong the Soviet Union looked twenty-five years ago? Thirty? Well, I guess it's longer than that now. Early '80s, you think about it. Yeah. Well, will the Soviet Union ever collapse? And all of a sudden, just like that, overnight. Seemingly. Hasn't that happened with every powerful kingdom on the face of this earth? Anyone who has ever brought themselves into opposition against the Lord and His Anointed One and the kingdom of the Messiah. Singing redirects our gaze to the everlasting throne of David's greater son who reigns above all worlds. And so David says, let me sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully towards me. Similarly, as the prophet Zephaniah said, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. The Lord will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you with his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. When David says, I'll sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully towards me. Quite literally, I'll sing to the Lord, for he has, literally in the Hebrew, done so towards me. The picture David has here is of the Lord not only providing for his daily needs, but the Lord singing to him. As the groom sings over his beloved bride on their wedding night. Such as the imagery that we find in the Psalms. The rest of Scripture, such as the Lord's delight over his church. Despite David's fear that the Lord has stood far off, the Lord has in fact been quite near to rejoice over his beloved. With The salvation that he brings, the Lord who gives us songs in the night. He rejoices over his beloved bride with songs of deliverance to calm the troubled heart in the midst of despair. And so as we look back and and consider this psalm and what it means for us, we we think of those words, how long, O Lord, and and I think the first thing to notice is this, it is not a sin to pray that prayer. I think sometimes we feel bad when we go, how much longer, God? But if you read Revelation chapter 6, you find that that is the very prayer that the saints in heaven are praying right now. O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Such is the prayer of faith that the saints in heaven, the saints in glory who see Christ face to face right now are even praying how much longer till You will fulfill all of Your promises. But what a difference there exists between the prayer of how long and the prayer of why me. Why me? I think if we are honest, so many of ourselves find ourselves praying that latter prayer than the former. Lord, why me? Why is this happening to me? It really exposes the disposition of our heart, doesn't it? That why me reflects the prayer of self pity and idolatry. A prayer that looks at our circumstances and says to God, I deserve better than this. When the reality is, We probably don't deserve better than this. We probably deserve worse from whatever it is we're going through. But notice how the chasm of difference between these two questions. Not why me, but how long. How long looks to the promises of God. says, Lord, You have promised this. When will You fulfill it? The question how long looks at our present circumstances yet turns to God not in accusation, but turns to God in faith asking not if God will keep His promise, but when we will see it come to pass. It is okay to long for the promises that God has given His church that have not yet come. Right? We live in a country that knows so little of persecution and suffering. We live in a culture that gives so little weight to the biblical doctrines of sin and grace. When troubles do hit, we are more prone to ask, Why me? What did I do to deserve this? We have to remind ourselves that all we have is given to us by grace. But God gives grace freely to lighten our eyes, to give great refreshing. We need to remind ourselves that the kind of happy, clappy tunes of the contemporary Christian world fall so short of the weightiness of the prayers we find in the Psalms. The Psalms recognize that despair is real and that our troubles are great. But the Psalms are also prayers given for our instruction to teach us what to pray and to teach us how to pray when we don't even know what to do. The Lord allowed David to go through such periods of sorrow so that David could put these words in Scripture so that we might be instructed how we too can pray. But not just David. David. Christ Himself. Isn't it significant that Jesus Himself is referred to in the Bible as the man of sorrows? And so we should see Psalm 13 as one of the prayers of the Messiah. On the night of His betrayal, Jesus entered into His suffering and told His closest friends, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death sounds so similar to what we've heard here in this psalm, isn't it? Not even his closest disciples, his closest friends, grasped his utter loneliness at what was coming. What what happens to the disciples as Jesus goes with such intensity and such agony that he's uh, uh, sweating drops of blood? Disciples fall asleep. They don't get the extreme pressure that the Messiah is undergoing as He is about to bear the sins of the human race. They have the face of the Father turn where Christ cries out in agony on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The night of His betrayal, Christ is betrayed by an alleged friend. He is abandoned by the rest of His friends denied by one of his closest friends, given over to the hands of the state, both Jew and Gentile alike. And yet in the midst of all this, our Savior entrusted himself to the Father who does all things justly. This is not the naive view of one who simply says to smile and get over your troubles pretend like they don't exist. This is not the cruel sayings of those who tell the woman in the midst of affliction that she apparently doesn't have enough faith because if she had enough faith, then she wouldn't be going through this mess. No, what we see here is a psalm that is a prayer that is mixed with despair and joy because such is the nature of life. That the Lord gives us grace day by day by day to sustain us in the midst of prolonged suffering. And so long as we walk through this world, there will be sorrow to one degree or another. But our Savior tells us not to lose heart, for He has, in fact, overcome the world. In commenting on this psalm, Calvin writes this, Let us learn from David those emotions which are apparently quite contrary to one another. Those emotions of despair and faith. And that they can be united beautifully, as in this prayer. We see it patterned also in the life of our Savior, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the suffering and the shame. How significant is it that on the night of Christ's betrayal, when he and his disciples leave the upper room and they make their way to the Mount of Olives, what is it that they do? They're found singing the Psalms. And that leads me back to my initial question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon. When Satan tempts you to despair, what do you do? Might I suggest as one practical application of this passage to do what David did and sing. Not the Beach Boys or the Beatles, as great as both bands are, but to sing the Psalter. Right, Not all psalms are happy clappy. In fact, none of them are that saccharine. Even the ones that are all joy have a rich I don't know other word than joy that, that really uh, kind of blows all kind of contemporary songs out of the water. In the Psalter, we find the prayer book of the church that leads us through every emotional high and emotional low. How fitting it is that these are prayers set to music. Because singing is God's gift that moves the soul. Right, what other ethic includes singing as part of its repertoire? Do you struggle with despair or spiritual depression? Might I suggest doing this? To pray the psalms, to memorize the psalms, and to sing the psalms? Get your hands on a psalter. What do I mean by that? Even if you're not struggling with spiritual apathy, I'd suggest everyone to do this. There are many out there. and find one that you love. I've actually got a couple out here that I just wanted to. To show you, because my job here as a pastor is just to, to let you know what's out there to help you. First off, you, you just get a simple little, like the ESV has a little, for 30 bucks, just the psalms and a little collection. I carry this everywhere I go. I was keeping the car with me. Just the 150 psalms for you just to read to use as a devotional. But then there's, uh, I think it's put out by uh, uh, Reformation Heritage, something like that. At least that's where I got mine from. The Psalms of David in meter. It's all 150 psalms set to meter, to common meter. What that means is uh, Amazing Grace. It's a common meter tune. You could sing Amazing Grace to all, the tune to all 150 psalms. There are other uh, me, you know, songs to sing besides Amazing Grace. But without, you know, if you can't read music, I think everybody here knows the tune Amazing Grace. And you can sing. Something you can do with your family. It helps you learn the songs. So what I love about our, our, our Scottish Presbyterian forebears, you know, when they would even when they would go off to battle, they were known for singing the psalms. I mean, this is this is kind of the bread and butter of Scottish Presbyterianism. And then, of course, our own Trinity Psalter Hymnal, which is set all 150 psalms to various tunes, some with multiple tunes. Pick whatever you want. Uh, even our psalter hymnal, you could get, a, a, you could download it for ten bucks on your iPhone or your Android, and you can hit the button where it actually plays the tune for you if you're if you don't know how to read music. All these things that the, uh, even our denomination is doing to help us learn God's word, that we might actually not only pray the psalms, but sing them because that's what they were intended to be done for. May the Lord use this, these these good things that we have. May we lay hold of them, uh, that we uh, might lift our hearts, Lord, that he might lift our souls out of the brink of despair. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would um, put a new song in our heart, that we might sing your word, and that you might use your word to draw us from the depths of despair and to cling to Uh, to those promises You've given us in Christ that have not yet been realized but will be realized on the day of His return. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.